Thanks, Jared. Well, good morning and welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. My name is Ted. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you all with us. And we have a lot of guests visiting today from North Greenville. We're great to have you guys with us as well this morning. And just to let you know where we have been and where we're going today, we have been in the book of Acts, going through the entire book over the next year. And the title of the entire series is called Be My Witnesses. Be my witnesses as God is calling us to join him in Christ's footsteps uh, on the mission field, sharing the gospel of Christ. And we're in a mini series now, which I entitled the big three. And so we've gotten through the Jerusalem section. And now we're looking at the lives of Stephen, Philip and Saul of Tarsus over a seven week period and how God used these men as a, a catalyst to begin taking the gospel beyond Jerusalem out into the world. And so today's our second look at Stephen, our second week in a row with Stephen. And you'll see the title up on the screen, Stephen Schools the Leaders. This is Stephen's very long speech that he gives before the Sanhedrin. But before we jump into that, I want to share a little story with you that I was reminded of this week when it comes to schooling those who think they know everything. And it happened after we moved to our current neighborhood in Traveler's Rest. We moved in about five years ago, and we heard this, this story about how just a couple months prior, there was this huge water event in our cul-de-sac where like everybody's house the plumbing kind of exploded the water everything weird happened someone's water heater blew up another person's meter blew up uh, sinks had blown up and water was going everywhere and so we heard about this and then finally i was able to talk to someone who was involved in it his name was dodd i don't remember his first name but his last name was dodd he lived at the end of our street and he happened to be an engineer with greenville water and he tells a story like this he Looked out his window one day, and the fire department had pulled up to the fire hydrant across from his house, and they were testing it. You've probably seen him do that before. Well, Dodd knew some information. He kind of had the big picture of how water works. He was an engineer, and he knew the pressure was especially high in our neighborhood, especially down our street. So he went out there and said, hey, gentlemen, with all respect, I know that you understand fire hydrants, but I know water, and I know there's a lot of pressure here. So when you go to close that valve in the fire hydrant, Close it real slowly. Otherwise, bad things will happen. Well, there was a young rookie firefighter on the ranch. And, of course, when he heard that, his pride was scratched a little bit, pricked a little bit. And he said, yeah, I'll show you slow. And so he muscled that thing closed real fast. And what it did was send what they call a water hammer of pressure down our street. And it affected every single house, including ours, as we would come to find out a couple months later, as we had our own uh, issue. And so that's what I thought about this week as we're looking at Stephen's speech, as he's going before the professional, the PhD guys in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests. And if you weren't with us last week, I'll catch you up to speed real quick. Stephen was one of the seven. He's out preaching the gospel to in Hellenist synagogue. So these would be Greek-speaking Jews. And he was preaching the gospel in a way that no one had uh, since Jesus, where he was saying, hey, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and he's the fulfillment of the temple. So you don't need the ceremonial law anymore, and you don't need the temple anymore. Well, that, this got, these got the Hellenists really upset because they moved back from other parts of the Roman Empire to be in Jerusalem. And so what are you talking about? Being here doesn't matter anymore. So they're angry. They drag them in front of the Sanhedrin. That's where we, we pick up today. So if you turn your Bibles to... Acts chapter 7, that's where we're going to be, and we're going to see uh, this great speech that he gives. And they essentially charged him with two charges, speaking against Moses, the law, and speaking against the temple. And so we find Stephen at the end of chapter 6, everyone staring at him intently as if, as if he's some caged animal. 
And yet the, the scriptures tell us that his, he had the face of an angel. We were just talking about and singing about the glory of God. It was as if the glory of God was shining through him. Complete confidence, dependent on the power of God at that moment. And we begin in chapter 7. We'll see uh, where that goes. But first, let's look at a quote from a theologian who helps us to understand what's going on with this, this speech or this sermon. Richard Longnecker says this, Stephen's speech was a powerful portrayal of God's dealing with Israel. And it mounted to a climax that unmasked the pig-headedness and disobedience of Israel and their leaders in this time. So our main point this week, as we kind of look at our big idea going in, what we're going to see and how we're going to start to apply the things that we learn, even for us, the church today, is this. Stephen gives the stubborn Jewish leaders a powerful reminder of the Lord's previous deliverances of his covenant people in the hopes of turning them toward his present deliverance in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see now at how, the, how Stephen takes the leaders to school. But first, let's pray. Father, we come back before you in prayer, thanking you for this time that we can hear from you, hear from your word. And as always, Lord, we just pray that you would teach us. I pray for each and every individual who is in here. I do not know where they are with you. I do not know their hearts. You do. And so, Father, take your word through the power of your spirit and work in each and every one of us. Those who are saved, help us to grow. Help us to submit and to obey to your word and apply these truths to our life. Anyone in here who's not a believer, Father, I pray you bring them to repentance and faith. Just like Stephen is hoping for the Sanhedrin, bring them to repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where our only hope lies. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing we're going to see, and this is the the biggest chunk. This is a challenging passage to preach because it's 50 verses, and we don't have time to read through the entire thing. So the first section is the big chunk, verses 2 through 34. And I've entitled it, Israel's Salvation History 101. He's giving them a history lesson. And this form of speaking is, is very, it was very normal for them. It was a Jewish form where when you're coming up to give a message, you're going to take time to uh, go back and retrace all that God has done for the nation of Israel. Because Israel existed in large part on how God had delivered them in the past. Both the, the promised fulfillment, as we'll see, through the patriarchs and bringing them to the land. And then, of course, the great deliverance of the exodus under the leadership of Moses. A lot of, a lot of scholars uh, would come to this passage, and even if you read it, the whole first section, which we're about to look at, you're like, what does this have to do with Stephen being charged and that he was preaching against the law and the temple? But this, again, was normative for him to do this, but he's also doing something here. The Holy Spirit really is doing something, again, reminding Israel how God has saved in the past. So hopefully they'll recognize how God is saving in the present through Jesus Christ. And so look with me at verse 1 of chapter 7, and you'll see everyone's assembled, everyone's in their places. Stephen's standing up there with the face of an angel. And the high priest said to him, are these things so? Essentially, he's saying, how do you plead? You're going to give yourself a defense. And so they allow him to do that. And then right off in verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, very respectful, very respectful of these men and of the procedures, said that God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And so what we have, again, we don't have time to read through the whole, uh, this whole first section, so I have outlined it simply up on the screen behind me. And this is essentially the threefold breakdown of Stephen's history lesson. The first section is the promises delivered to Abraham, namely the promise of the, the land, that one day 
his offspring would possess this land. And more, more so, another promise, they're actually going to go and sojourn in another land for 400 years and then be brought back. So Abraham is given these promises. And then the second section, the deliverance through Joseph. And this, of course, takes us uh, beyond Abraham to one of his great-grandchildren. You know the story. I'm hoping uh, you guys can fill in some of these gaps, just like Stephen was with his audience. Uh, a famine struck the land. Of course, before that, Joseph is sold into slavery by his older brothers rejected as God's leader by his own people, sent into slavery. He goes to Egypt, but God is with him. God raises him up to be the second in charge of Egypt. And then in God's sovereignty, he was really sending Joseph ahead of time to provide for the small nation of Israel. Now Jacob and the family would be able to come, escape the famine in the promised land, and find refuge in Egypt. And in the third section, verses 17 through 34, that's the deliverance through Moses again. Many years had gone by. Uh, Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph. Uh, Israel went from being uh, having a favored place to now being slaves. And they grew really big. And God provides this deliverer, Moses, who, who comes in. And he had, you see him attempt. And Stephen reminds us of this in the speech. He, he makes an attempt to deliver his people. At the age of 40, after growing up in Pharaoh's household, receiving the best Egyptian education, uh, he goes out to see his people. And he has an opportunity to deliver a Jewish person from a, an Egyptian slave or taskmaster who is kind of beaten him. And he kills the Egyptian man. And he was hoping, as Stephen tells us, he's hoping that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And so as the rumor of the murder uh, gets around, Moses gets afraid and he runs for his life to Midian where he spends another 40 years. But then Stephen tells us how God visits him, the burning bush calls him now to be his man to go back and set his people free. So another thing I want to show you, you'll see this on the screen behind me too. These are some patterns. If we were able to spend the time, and I encourage you to go back and spend the time. It's a wonderful study. You're going to see some patterns within God's deliverance in these three episodes in Israel's history past. And again, Stephen's sharing this with the Sanhedrin hoping that they would understand and be reminded because they've charged him with being against Moses and being against with the, the temple. He's like, brothers, you don't know your history. Let me take you back and remind you of how God has saved. So here's a few things that we notice in these three sections. The so first and foremost, God acts outside of the promised land. Now there's three pillars in first century Judaism that was, they were really stumbling blocks for the Jews. The first was the land. They, they put too much significance on the land itself. The second was the law. And the third was the temple. And what happened was, granted, these are all very important, but they put too much importance upon them. Too much importance upon them. And so the first thing that Stephen wants them to see as he's taking them on this history lesson is look at each and every time that God has acted in a major way in Israel's history. It's been outside of the land. Where did he appear to Abraham? Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Where did he appear to Joseph and use Joseph to deliver? It was in Egypt while he was a slave, while he was in prison. God raised him up to be the deliverer of this nation. Where was Moses when God called him? Midian, Mount Sinai. None of these men were in the promised land. And so he's trying to show them that God is working outside of this place. You, you have too narrow of a focus on this land. The second thing we see is the promise fulfillment theme. This is huge. 
You see here how God begins with Abraham giving him a promise and then seeing the fulfillment. And the same thing has happened with Jesus Christ. All of the prophecies of the Messiah now are being fulfilled. So he's hoping that they'll see that pattern and be reminded of the promise fulfillment theme. Third, God raises up Christ-like leaders. We call these types. You may have heard a type of Christ. Uh, Sometimes people get a little carried away and they find a type of Christ under every bush in the Old Testament. So you have to be a little careful. But Joseph and Moses are definitely types of Christ. And what I mean by a type is this would be a person, an event, or a thing that is so fashioned or appointed to resemble another. And so Joseph, uh, again, he was sold, betrayed by his own people, sold into slavery for pieces of silver. He is raised up to set free as king and ruler of God's people. So you see a type of Christ there. Moses, too. And we'll see more of this in the next section, how Moses and Christ are so similar as well. So God does raise up men. And and his hopes are, as they're reminded of Joseph, they're reminded of Moses, maybe that will break through and let them see that Jesus is the, the ultimate fulfillment of this type of deliverer, this type of savior that God uses throughout his history. The fourth thing is, And this is really interesting. The Israelites have a habit of rejecting God's deliverer. Did not Joseph's brothers reject him? He shared the dreams he had. There was some prophecy in there. They reject him, betray him, their own flesh and blood, and sell him into slavery. How about Moses? He came down from Pharaoh's house, trying by his own hand to to save his people, and they rejected him. We're going to see they're going to reject him a second time as well after they get through the Red Sea. So Israelites have a habit of rejecting God's deliverers. And that's what Stephen's trying to show them now. You want to talk about our people? You want to talk about our history? Look at what your fathers did to God's deliverers in the past. You're doing the same thing right now. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And there's a fifth thing. I didn't put this up on the screen, but there's a fifth thing. And this is going to be more for us an application is this. God's people are healthiest when they're on the move. God's people are healthiest when they're pilgrims and sojourners on the move. We get in trouble when we start to put roots down and get complacent and get stuck in our ways and start creating status quo after status quo after status quo. Because as we see Israelite moving around from place to place, God is moving with them, and there's a healthiness to that. We'll talk more about that in a moment as we get to the application. But we do this ourselves, don't we? What about when someone comes to you for advice? Somebody comes to you for wisdom, or you go to somebody for advice. Who do we usually seek out? We look for people who are doing or are farther along than we are in a similar field that we're in, or Or a similar uh, opportunity, like a new mother going to a mom who's had several children. Or a young intern going to a pastor. Why is that? Because we know they've traveled down the road longer than us. They've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. If I can learn some lessons from their mistakes or things they have seen, then it's going to help me on my road. I'm going to have my own to learn. But if I can learn a few things from them, how great would that be? Or even me as a parent, now having a teenager, going to my older boys and saying, hey, listen. I've been down this road. In fact, I've gone too far down it. I know where this ends. Trust me, you don't want to be on it. We do that all the time. It's very normative in society. And that's really what Stephen's doing here. I don't think his audience is that cooperative in what he's doing, but he's hoping they'll learn from the mistakes of their forefathers. 
who continually rejected God, rejected God. God would reach his hand out. They'd slap it away. You're making that mistake all over, except this time it's even worse because you've already killed his Messiah. But even now, repentance is possible for you. So ending this first section, this history lesson 101, let's look at a few takeaways for us that we can take out of here. I don't like to preach unless I have something to give each of us that we can take from this and apply into our life. And the first lesson that we need to be reminded of, and you'll see this again as one of those themes in the history lesson, is that holy ground is wherever God is. Holy ground is wherever God is. We saw it with the burning bush. They're in a mountain in, in Sinai, in, in Mount Sinai in, in Midian. And what, is it, what does God tell Moses? Take your, feet, your sandals off for your, the place you're standing is holy ground. And that was the Jews' problem. They thought the only holy ground was Israel, and more specifically, Jerusalem. They were so stuck on it. They forgot that God is so much bigger, and he is everywhere, and he is transcendent, and always working on the entire planet, and calling us to join him everywhere. But there's an encouragement for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, because the scriptures tell us that when God saves us, the third person of the Trinity takes up residence in us, comes to dwell in us. Jesus Christ lives in us through his spirit. So wherever you are, the presence of God is, that's holy ground. Something really important to remember when we're tempted, when we're alone and our character is tested. Where do we go with the TV remote? Where do we go on the internet? Remembering that we are on holy ground. Having that thought in our mind can help to save us from falling into temptation. Also, it's encouraging when members of the church, believers, are, are gathered together and working in the mission field where everyone else might be pagan to know that hey holy ground is right here wherever god is and even us as we're gathering to worship this morning as those of us who are saved come together god is with us not because of this building or any building but because of his presence in our hearts the second thing to take away from this pilgrim sojourner living a people on the move this is our biggest challenge as christians in america again some of us god will call to leave this country, to sell our possessions and go off into the mission field. And that is awesome. We have great friends, uh, the Boyers right now, who own very little because they're postured to go live the rest of their lives in Ireland. And we're supporting them. We're excited. But that's not going to be all of us or even most of us. So we have this challenge before us as a church and as Christians. How do we live as pilgrims when we do have roots, when we do have homes, when we live in one neighborhood? How do we live in such a way? That we don't allow ourselves to get too locked into and too complacent into this life. So we have this challenge of living as a people on the move. And one piece of advice I can give that I'm learning in my life is all these things that God has given me possession-wise, I need to appreciate them but not venerate them. Not let them go up to the importance of God's level to where I no longer possess them but they're now possessing me. Once that happens, it's impossible for us to continue to live as pilgrims. So there's a lot more to learn there, but that's a challenge I place before you that God has for us. We need to learn to live as pilgrims and people on the move. The third thing is ongoing missions. Uh, that's one thing we take away from here. Our God is working all over the planet. We've learned now America is not the center of Christianity on earth. It never was, but we thought it was. We had this American exceptionalism, just like the Jews did where we thought we had to take our mission and our church and go do it our way in their land. Thankfully, indigenous missions have saved us from that, from that colonial model. But we have to continue to realize God's calling us outward. Yes, he's calling us to do missions here, 
but everywhere and not get so stuck in one place like the Jews had here and like we have had in the past. And the final thing is I want to encourage you to take up the study of biblical theology. It's a great uh, discipline that has come back in recent years, and it's simply studying the scriptures as one big meta-narrative where you see these types and these promise fulfillment themes worked out. And so I encourage you, find some books. Uh, Jim Hamilton is a good resource. There's many others. And study it. You'll love love this because truly uh, today people love to hear stories. And so it's great to share the gospel in story form. And so biblical theology is a great discipline to help with that. So we've seen Stephen's history lesson. Let's move on now. The last part of this uh, passage, the last uh, section, we're going to see two parts in this section. But we're going to see Stephen now specifically begin to respond to their charges. Remember, they charged him in two ways. In fact, here's a... um, a slide up here. This is actually from last week's sermon, and it's just a reminder of the two ways in which they were charging him. And this is actually the title of the first uh, section here. Their problem was they were mistaking the means for the end. And so they charged him back in chapter 6 with being against Moses, being against the law, and also being against the temple. They were mistaking the means for the end. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me illustrate it. When I was a kid, I grew up in South Florida, and part of being a Floridian was access to Disney World. It was great. For you guys, it's like a once or twice in a lifetime pilgrimage. For us, it was like every year. Of course, it was a lot cheaper back then. So as a kid, I remember getting on the turnpike down in South Florida, heading up to Orlando, and going to Disney World, and it was awesome. But can you imagine if we were setting out on our track to Disney World on the turnpike, and we get to one of the rest stops? By the way, the rest stops on the Florida turnpike are awesome. There are so many candy vending machines. They've got restaurants. It's incredible. Uh, the only danger is you want to make sure you go outside, out the right side of the building, like northbound or southbound, because that messed me up as a little kid once, scared to death. Anyways, those rest stops are cool. But can you imagine if we're going and we stop at the rest stop and we say, you know, this rest stop's pretty cool. I don't think Disney's got much on this. Let's just stay here, enjoy our day at the rest stop, and then we'll go home. That's silly, right? The, the destination is Disney World. And that's what the Jews are doing. In, in this passage, they got off several stops too early. And they got stuck on the means. The law, the old covenant, that wasn't the end. It was never the end. It was the means to get us to the end, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God coming. And that's what Stephen's trying to alert them to. That's what he's trying to show them. You're mistaking the means for the end. The end is so much better, so much glorious, just like Disney World to a turnpike rest stop. And that's the hope he has in sharing with them. So let's look now. Let's rejoin the text. We're going to read a little bit more than we had. Starting in verse 35, the history lesson has ended. Now he's dealing with the first charge, which was that he was preaching against Moses or against the law. Let's look what he has to say about this Moses. He says, this Moses, and read between the lines, who you're charging me that I'm being against, this Moses whom they rejected, your forefathers, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So we see this this Moses now. And what's amazing about this description of Moses is you see, if you're looking, that he is indeed a type of Christ. I have a slide up here on the screen that shows us the similarities between Moses and Jesus. God sent both to be ruler and redeemer. Both were used to deliver Israel out of bondage. 
Both performed signs and wonders. And as we're going to see, both were rejected by the very people they were sent to rescue. So he's, he's reminding, he said, you're charging me that I'm against Moses? No, no, it's your forefathers who were against Moses. And you're following in their footsteps right now. Repent and believe. And now look what he says in verse 37. Not only do we see a man who is similar and a forerunner of Jesus Christ, Moses himself prophesied the coming of the Messiah. We see this in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, and he quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And in that passage, he goes on to say, listen to him. This Moses who you put all your hopes in is a, was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Not only that, he predicted the Messiah would come. And you're, you've killed him already, and now you're continuing to reject him. Continuing to reject him. Continuing to look at the passage, picking up in verse uh, 39. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who knows what happened to him? Who knows what happened to him? And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Do you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of Raphon and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So right here, again, huge object lesson. Look what your fathers did to Moses. They rejected him. They made their own God. Their hearts turned back to Egypt. They were rejoicing in the work of their own hands. My friends, that is our big hang-up as God followers. When we forget the mission that we've been called upon, and we start to rejoice in the works of our own hands, the tangible things that we hold on to where pride comes from. And Stephen is trying to get through to the Sanhedrin. He's trying to show them you're making the same mistake that they made. You're following in their footsteps. And then he quotes from Amos chapter 5, a passage that that kind of uh, sums up the idolatry of Israel from Exodus all the way to the Babylonian captivity. And what God is telling in this passage is, in the wilderness, you didn't worship me. Yeah, you were bringing animals, you were sacrificing, you thought that was me, but you created a false God. You invented a God that, that suited your sin a God that you were comfortable with, a God that you were okay with. You were calling him my name, but that wasn't me. In fact, let me tell you the gods you were worshiping. And the Jews today, or in Stephen's day, were making the same exact mistake. They had created a false God. They called him Yahweh, but it wasn't God. God had kicked off that ship because Jesus Christ is where God's going, and they missed it. And the hope was that they would repent. Look at this great passage from Hebrews. A good reminder of God's progressive revelation. It shows both the means and the end in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews opens up his book with this. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. There's your end. And there's the means right in front of it. And that's what these guys missed. They got off several stops too early. 
So the first charge, he has answered. I'm not preaching against Moses. I'm preaching the fulfillment of what Moses was trying to say. You guys are the ones that are against Moses. You don't know your history. You're following in the footsteps of your father. So the final thing we're going to see here in the, at the end of this passage, and you'll see this on the slide here. Again, we saw how they were mistaking the means for the end. And he's going to get to their second charge now that he was against the temple, that he had said that Jesus would destroy the temple. And when it came to the temple, they had the right idea, the Jews. The Jews had the right idea about worshiping where God's presence was, but they had the wrong temple. Let me show you what I mean. Remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus clears the temple. Uh, probably, again, the, the last week before he was crucified, he goes in. And th- this is huge. If you don't know much about that story when Jesus cleared the temple, the area that they had all these shops set up where they were selling the animals, it was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the one part of the temple where Gentiles could come, and it was for evangelism. It's so that they could be exposed to the gospel. And instead of using it to bring the Gentiles in, they set up shop, and the Pharisees and Sadducees were making a profit. They were turning a nickel. They were selling animals because they, they would say, you know, your animals got defects. Come buy one of ours, and you really have no choice. So it was a bad scene. Jesus goes in there and clears it, and then they're, they're all upset. And he stands up there, and he says, hey, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. Think about that. You had the building temple behind him, and then Jesus standing in front of him. You had the real temple and the false temple. And that was the problem. They had the right idea. They had the wrong temple. And here's the passage up on the screen already uh, from John 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. Again, he's talking about one temple. They're talking about the other one. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is the most beautiful thing about God. Our God is so amazing that he's willing to tabernacle with mankind in order to save us. It began in the Old Testament, of course, with the building, with with the tabernacle tent, as we'll see, and the, the structure of the building. And then it came in the form of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, in human form, same thing. He's the temple. Now in human form, he's tab- God's tabernacling amongst us, Emmanuel, God with us. And now, in this period of history, those who are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We're tabernacling with God. God with us. They had the right idea. They had the wrong temple. Look with me at verse 44. He gives them a little history lesson here on on the tent and temple. Uh, This is a really great summary of basically Exodus all the way through 2 Kings. Or 1 Kings. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. So that's the tent. You might remember that. Moses built it in Exodus. It was a mobile tabernacle. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, namely the, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So up until David, the temple was a tabernacle. It moved. It was mobile. There was health there because, you know, it didn't get stuck in one place necessarily. And God was moving. Think of the sojourning and the pilgriming. God on the move. Verse 46, though. David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So, in this case, Stephen's not really saying, hey, I didn't do it. He's saying, yeah, I did that. I, I did say that this building doesn't mean anything. In fact, he probably told him some of Jesus' predictions at the end of Matthew that this building was going to be destroyed one day. Of course, now we know that would be about 30-something years later, in AD 70, when the Roman Empire would come in and destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. Because he was trying to point them to the temple that mattered, Jesus Christ. And he does this by quoting Isaiah 66 and saying, Who, who's God? God doesn't need a house. And essentially what the Jews were doing is they were putting God in a box as if. God wasn't in their box. But they were trying to put God in a box. And in doing so, they missed it. Now, this very thing happens a lot today in America. I don't know about other denominations, but I know us Baptists struggle with our love and affection for buildings. And uh, back in 2007, I was called, it's when we moved up here to Greenville, I was called to help revitalize a historic church in downtown Greenville. And God, by God's grace, he, he got a staff in under the radar who was biblical, but most of the church was not. And so I got in to help as an associate pastor. And, uh, and when I got there, it surprised me. I had never seen Baptists or, or really anyone who loved a building so much. Most of the members' identity was wrapped up in that building. It broke my heart. And I grew up Roman Catholics. So I know what it's like for people to start, you know, have idolatry going on. I just didn't think it was possible for Baptists at that level. They loved that building. Their identity was wrapped in it, and there was no room in their heart for Christ, no room in their heart for the gospel. And you'll see a picture up on the screen of what eventually happened to that building. It got torn down because we learned a lesson the church is not a building. The church is a people. And when, Pete, when, when we have a way of putting too much veneration into an object, even a blessing, this building at one time was a blessing to that church and a blessing to the community, but it became an idol. We destroyed it. We saved the church. And the building's gone, but the church isn't. The church is still going strong. They're actually one of our partners here at the Church of Blue Ridge. And so we have to guard our hearts against venerating and raising up the things that God blesses us with because they become idols. And just like the Jews, we mistake the means for the end. We should see Stephen as a reformer, standing in a long line of prophets who criticized Israel's tendency to substitute a man-made institution for a living relationship with God. We too need to have that heart to protect ourselves from making the same mistakes. So as we wind up here, let me give you a few more application points to take away from here. First and foremost, we also in this area suffer from a lot of man's tradition. Isaac, if you would, if you could put that slide back up from uh, Mark 7. Great passage, a great reminder that Jesus said. You can get it up. I don't know how that would. There we go. I love this passage. Look what Jesus says to these same group of people some years before. He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we need to break away. For those of us who have been afflicted by legalism and fundamentalism, 
where you're cleaning up the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of dead man's bones or the whitewashed tomb, rather. We need to learn to break away from the quicksand of man's traditions where, where God's grace and the love has been quenched by fundamental legalism. And the way we break away is truth and grace, allowing the word of God to speak from itself, being rescued by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to understand that Christianity isn't about behavior and cleaning up the outside of the cup. It's about a new heart being changed. And then us growing together as a body of believers where we're learning to love one another. We're learning to come come alongside one another in grace and love and forgiveness. Second thing is, Permanent space will never be the goal of the Church of Blue Ridge. This is our second building that God has provided us with free. Now, do, do I hope we get permanent space? Yeah, I think there's great benefit to that. But what I'm saying, it's never going to be the goal. I don't know about you, but I've been part of a church plant before that was meeting in a high school for two and a half years. It, there was vibrancy. There was some great things happening. And then we got our first building. Everything changed. We put down roots. We stopped being sojourners. We stopped being pilgrims. We came, became complacent, and we created a status quo. So we expect God to provide us with permanent space when that time comes. But it's going to be like, oh, cool, look at this. Thank you, Lord, but let's keep going. Let's keep going and not allow ourselves to get complacent and put down roots. Third thing is a question I have for all of us. In what way are you, even as Christians, trying to put God in a box in your life? Kind of creating a God to suit your sin that you're comfortable with. A little, little compartment over here. But not allowing the God of glory to take control of your entire life. Not learning to what it means to be totally committed to God. To have the, the, your mind renewed by his spirit. That's something we'd love to help you with because we're still figuring that out in our lives as well. So please let us know. And then the final thing is, as I end with kind of a visualization. We all know the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia story. Especially that first, or actually it's the second, first book, second book now, whatever. Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. What do they always say about Aslan? Aslan's on the move, and he's not a tame lion. I love that. thought about that a lot as I was studying this passage. He's always on the move, meaning he's a moving God. We need to move with him and be pilgrims and sojourners. But also, he's not a tame lion. You can't put him in a box. You can't fashion him into a suitable God, because once you do that, it's no longer God. It's something you've created. It's a false God. Let us not make that same mistake. Let us know who our God really is. And we end with this quote from F.F. F. Bruce, which I thought was very, very fitting to close things down. Those who are obedient to the heavenly vision, Stephen seems to suggest, will always live loose to any one spot on earth and will always be ready to go out, to, to get out and go wherever God may God. May that be true of each and every one of us who follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead and call the guys back up as we return to a time of worship. I just want to give the invitation. For those of us who are believers in Christ, the invitation is simple. We're going to worship God now. Let's worship him in what he has taught us. Let's worship him for the truth, for the gospel, and what he has revealed to us this morning. But for those of you... Not sure where you are with the Lord. Not sure of your salvation. Don't let another day go by. Just as Stephen was so urgent in his communication with the Sanhedrin. We're going to see it. By the way, next week, if you come back, we're going to finish that speech out with the climatic moment. And see what happens to Stephen and why. We're going to look at that. But he wanted them to repent. There wasn't much time left. Judgment was upon them. A hardening was happening in their heart. 
Don't let that be the case with you. If there's any doubt, if you have any questions, please come and track us down. We would love to talk to you. I'll be standing right back there. Come talk to me this morning. Uh, email me. Set up an appointment. Robert as well. We would love to share the gospel and, uh, and just talk to you and ask some questions and see where you're at. So as God leads, you guys respond accordingly. But let us worship our God for what he has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the courage that Stephen had. What an example of what total commitment looks like. A man who had denied himself, took up his cross, and followed you. Totally committed. And we now benefit from that faith, from that determination, and for the love he had, even for his own people, that they would have repented and believed. And thank you, Lord, that there was one man there that day, at least. One Pharisee who you would lead to faith in Christ. And would go on to be one of the greatest men our world has ever known. But we'll get to that story next week. Thank you for this man. Thank you for this example. My prayer is for us today. Those of us who know you, who you've saved, let us obey. Father, if we're trying to put you in a box in any way, if we're, if we're stuck in sin, if we're trapped in the mud of, of traditionalism or just, again, sinfulness, give us the ability, the courage, and the help from others to, to come out. And to be obedient and to follow you. And for anyone in here who doesn't know you, Lord, you know their hearts. I don't. Open their eyes and bring them to recognition, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ. Even today, Lord. Even today. Lord, bless us as we go from here. And teach us how to be a, pe- a pilgrim people. A people on the move. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.